And today we will look at the first seven verses of 1 Timothy. We've actually started with this book last week with an introduction to the book. And uh, the plan is to study the whole book and to go through it chapter by chapter. Um, because Lord willing, uh, we are in a season of our church where we would like to install our own deacons um, in this church as well. That we might be a more healthy church, a more biblically functioning church. But um, it's good for us to see the flow of thought in this book. So let's read the passage together. I'll pray for us and then we'll dive in. So let's read 1 Timothy 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by command of God our Savior and of Christ Jesus our hope, to Timothy, my true child in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies, which promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Certain persons, by swerving from these, have wandered away into vain discussion desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they are saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. It's a reading of God, so let's pray. Father, we, we come humbly to you and to your word. Your word says that those who tremble at your word are those that you regard. And Lord, we come trembling. Lord, but also anticipating what you will teach us through these verses. So, Father, speak to us clearly and help us, Lord, to be a healthy church as you desire us to be. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So, as many of you know, yesterday, uh, we, our family, have moved into a new home. And one thing you'll start noticing when you come into a new home or a new environment, uh, you'll see, you start to see little cracks that you didn't notice before, Right? The paint that is just starting to come off, or that door that just doesn't work so well anymore, etc., etc. You will know as good as I that if you live long enough in the same place, you just get used to that kind of a thing, right? You'd say, oh, this door. And then later you just say, oh, I can live with it. It's okay. Now, Deborah and I, we were talking about this, and we say, well, how does that happen? How does a house... Now, just to say we love our house, houses gorgeous okay that's not to say just trying to make a point here but how does that happen how does the house just fall apart right and well the answer is quite simple over a long period of time it's not something that happens in a day it's a slow decade if you let the maintenance of the place go sure enough the house will start to break anyone who knows the proverbs will know that what i'm talking about because this is true of everything in your life your studies your your marriage, your parenting, if you are lazy, everything will fall apart. Listen to Proverbs 24, probably one of the most convicting verses for my own life. I pass by the field of a sluggard. What a, what a word. Like a slug, okay? By the vineyard of a man lacking sense. And behold, it was all overgrown with thorns. The ground was covered with nettles and its stone wall was broken down. Then I saw and I considered it. I looked and I received instruction. A little sleep. A little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest, and poverty will come upon you like a robber and want like an armed man. Be sure that the sluggard's house didn't look like that in a day. It was over 
small lazinesses, if that's a word, over a long period of time, that everything was falling apart. And beloved, what is true of our homes and our souls is also true of the church. A church asleep, a church that is happy with where they are, has, will also slowly break down, will also slowly de 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 deteriorate. Especially where pastors are lazy, shepherds of the church. They're, that's when wolves creep in and devour the sheep. And where the sheep are not watchful and prayerful, they also will not even realize when they are receiving false doctrine, false teaching. And that is what has unfortunately has happened at the church of Ephesus. Remember, Paul predicted in Acts 20 that there would come false teachers from the elders, from the pastors. There would come wolves. Pastors have gone astray. Some of the elders have started to teach weird teachings, weird doctrines. Ironically, that had some biblical basis. That's what made it so difficult. And as a result, the church became sick, malnourished, because it wasn't eating sound doctrine. It was eating false teaching, and that's why they were sick. And therefore, Paul writes this opening chapter in 1 Timothy to give Timothy a simple command to stop the false teachers, to silence them because of what it produces in the life of God's people. But he does that by also reminding him what true doctrine is. And that's the title of the sermon, true doctrine. What is true doctrine? Doctrine is just a big word for teachings or theology. And so Paul helps Timothy and the church to test their doctrine. You really need to test our, our theology. Test and see if our doctrine, our teaching is in, in accord with the gospel, in accord with, with holiness of life. And that's what God really wants us to become. Christians that don't just swallow up everything we hear, but that we discern, we listen, and we taste what we hear according to the word of God. So Paul will write to Timothy, his true son in the faith, to God, true doctrine, which will produce true love. That's the outline of, our, of the sermon tonight. So Paul first writes to his true son, Timothy. Look at verse 1 again. This is, he's now writing to his true son in verse 1. He says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by command of God our Savior and of Christ Jesus our hope. So unlike our letters, where if you write a letter, normally you put your name at the end. In ancient letters, you put your name at the beginning. And Paul says, I'm writing to you with the authority of an apostle, capital A, apostle, okay? Because he's speaking on God's behalf. He's been called and sent out by Jesus himself. That's why Paul's words and his letters are the very words of Christ. So when you read 1 Timothy, you are reading the words of Jesus himself to you and to us. And look at this. Paul says, I didn't want to be an apostle. I didn't choose this. Look again at what verse 1 says. He's an apostle by command of God our Savior. Remember, how did Paul get saved? Was he on his way to a Bible study? No, right? He was on his way to kill Christians. And Christ saved him. Christ called him. And he says, listen, this, I'm an apostle, not just by the will of God, which is what he says in other letters, but by the command of God. It's like, I didn't have a choice of this. This is his command that I'm an apostle. So what Paul is writing is not his opinion, his preferences. This is the living words of Jesus for us. 
And then Paul immediately writes what the whole letter will be about. We, we looked at this last week, but let's read it again. He says, Command of God our Savior and of Christ Jesus our hope. There were many problems in this church, and the solution in a nutshell is God Himself. When we start believing false teachings and false doctrines, because we lose our focus from God, who He is, what He has done, right? All wrong thinking, all wrong living can be traced back either to ignorance or wrong understanding of who God is or unbelief in who God is. Those would be the two sources of every wrong living, wrong, wrong acting and speaking. That's why the worthiest thing study you could undertake is a study of who God is. And our side note uh, advertisement, that's why you should come to Growth Group. Because that's what we're doing at Growth Group, right? Okay, back to the pulpit. Now, who is this God? What has He done? He is our Savior. Did you see that? Verse 1, God our Savior, for by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not the result of work, so that no one may boast. Jesus is our hope. He will return, as 2 Thessalonians says, with His mighty angels in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel. He's our hope. He is coming back. And this is what Timothy needed. This is what you and I need. A reminder. God is our Savior. We don't save ourselves. And Jesus is our hope. He's our hope. That's what we need, with, even when we are in difficult churches. All right? God is our Savior and Jesus is our hope. And next, Paul says something beautiful about Timothy in verse 2. He says to Timothy, my true child in the faith. Timothy was just one of those men. If you read the, the Acts, if you read the letters, he was just always with Paul. Right? We read this about Timothy in Acts 16. This is where probably he came to Christ. 16 verse 1, he says, Paul came also to Derbe and to Lystra. A disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer, but his father was a Greek. He was well spoken of by the brothers at Lystra and Iconium. Paul wanted Timothy to accompany him, and he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in those places, for they all knew that his father was a Greek. Now, any man that's willing to be circumcised for the gospel has true saving faith. Right? If you can't say amen, you have to say ouch, like Bodie Barkham says, okay? <laughs> okay. But what do we learn about Timothy in these verses? He was a half-Jew. His mother was a Jew. His father was a Greek. From the eyes of a Jew, that would make him not a pure child of Abraham, a half-breed. An illegitimate child, an illegitimate son. Now, this is so amazing. Paul, the Greek word for true, literally means, is used literally for children born in wedlock. That's literally what this word true means. So Paul is saying the opposite to Timothy, saying, Timothy, you are legitimate. You are a true child. You know, it's not about your bloodline. It's not about where you come from. It's not about how you've been raised, what you know, what you don't know. By faith, you are a child of Abraham. If you put your trust in Jesus, you are in the covenant, promises and blessing by grace. Timothy, that's your identity. Don't get lost in genealogies. That's what we will see later. That's why these false teachers were focusing on genealogies. 
And beloved, for you and me, it's the same thing. You are a true Christian by faith, trusting Jesus. Not because of your baptism, your catechism, your upbringing, but simply if you put your trust in Jesus. Now, Paul ends his introduction by saying what he prays God will give him by reading this letter. Look at verse one, 2 again. It says, <clears throat> Grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. So what Timothy, Timothy, this is what you need. You need grace that will cover all your sins. Isn't that what we need? You need mercy, God's compassion, God's help. He's concerned for you. That's what I pray he will give you, his mercy. You need peace, that inner quiet, that inner stability, no matter what's going on outside of you, because you are reconciled to God. That's what I pray you will get as you read 1 Timothy. That's what Paul is doing here. Now, before we go on, it's important to say that this letter is primarily meant for Timothy, but it was also intended for the entire church of Ephesus. And we know that because the very last verse in, in 1 Timothy says, Grace to you, grace be with you. And that you there in the Greek is plural. So in the beginning, it says, Grace to you, singular Timothy. And at the end of the letter, it says, Grace to you, the church. So Paul intended this letter not just to be read to Timothy, but as if the church had to read over his shoulders. You know, it's like an open letter. Paul wanted the whole church to know what he's writing to Timothy. So we've seen that Timothy, Timothy is a true son by faith. And now he calls Timothy to defend true doctrine. That's the second point we'll look at. The true son, you need to defend true doctrine. And he does that by showing them what false doctrine looks like, okay? He jumps right in. Look at verse 3. <clears throat> Verse 3 says, As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine. Remember, Paul was a missionary. He never stayed at one place long. He wanted to plant a church, establish elders, and then he wanted to go on to places where Jesus has never been heard, never been mentioned. That was Paul's heart. That's Paul the missionary, right? Now, People like Timothy are commanded to do what? Not to go. Literally the opposite. He says, Timothy, stay at Ephesus. Serve the church where you are. Remember, that's the goal of missions. The goal of missions is to plant healthy biblical churches in every country, in every place. That every, every, every people group could hear. So if those churches go wrong then the whole point of missions would have been failing. So Paul says to Timothy, listen, don't go to foreign countries. Stay where you are. Support the kingdom, the work of the kingdom right where you are. Now, of course, we need Pauls in our day. We need people that would say, I will go. Oh, but we need people to stay as well, to remain and to serve God faithfully wherever you are for his kingdom. And Timothy's charge is clear. He says, stop people from teaching different things. Doctrine, verse 3 again. It says that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine. And here Paul will give us three marks. Now there are many, I think there's many marks of false teaching, but here are at least three marks of false teaching that you can use to test. The first of these three marks is the, uh, false, teach, false doctrine will be focusing on what we do. <clears throat> focusing on what we do. Now, of course, 
there's time and place to teach about how we should live. But what I have in mind here is what we do to have a right relationship with God. In other words, this is what we, you and I must do to be saved. Now, if we, if we read Paul saying, don't let anyone teach a different doctrine, what's one of the first questions that must come up in your mind? Different from what? Okay, is there like a standard? Is there a norm? Now, at its most basic level, it is different from apostolic teaching, different from the teaching of Jesus. That's the idea here. Now, here we already see that in the early church, there was a norm. There was a standard of faith. There was a standard of doctrine that people should not teach differently. Now, this goes against a very popular saying today. Probably you've heard this before. I, we have no creed but the Bible. The Bible alone is our confession of faith. Well, that's exactly what every cult says as well, right? No, we don't have those statements of faith. We just have the Bible, and they deny the deity of Christ. They deny salvation by grace because they just pick and choose verses they like. Now, what we should say to people like that is, but you know that the Bible shows that there is something like a different Jesus, a different gospel, a different Holy Spirit, and a different doctrine that we've just read. So can you be more specific? What do you believe? That's what we need to ask people. Now, the reason why there should be this standard, this norm, is because false teaching often is so believable because it just have enough Bible in to sound good. That's what this false teaching has been in, right? They, it looks biblical. Look at verse 4 again. So verse 4 says, Nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies. Where do we find genealogies? In the Bible. Those, those chapters you just skip in the Bible, you know? Or you read it to find baby names. That's what I'm doing. That's my strategy. I'm just laying it out there, okay? But they were, they were majoring on that. They were, they were seeking to discern from which tribe they came from, probably to see if they are legitimate. And I think that's why Paul said, Timothy, no, don't worry about bloodlines and, and from what genealogy you come from. If you have faith in Christ, you are in. And look at, look at verse 7 again. What, what were these teachers doing? They were desiring to be teachers of the law. They were in the Bible. They were using the Bible. They were teaching the Bible. They wanted to understand what the law says, and they wanted to apply it to people. Now, Paul contrasts what this teaching mainly misses in verse 4. What, do, what does this teaching miss? Okay, it says, These myths and endless genealogy promote speculation rather than the stewardship from God. That is by faith. That word stewardship is a difficult word to translate. It can mean God's plan, God's administration. It can refer to the stewardship which you and I receive from God. So it's, it's difficult. I think the simplest way to understand this is to say it mainly refers to God's revealed plan of salvation in which we participate in by faith. In other words, the whole Bible, the whole plan of salvation, that's God's stewardship. That's God's plan, administration. And we participate there in the end of verse 4, by faith. So to put it succinctly, what does this false teaching miss? They are missing Jesus. They're, they're focusing on genealogies and on, on the law, but they, they're looking at the trees and missing the wood. Right? They're not seeing the bigger picture of the Bible, that it's all about Jesus, it's all about Him. 
Instead, they focus on the law. Endless genealogies, like the Pharisees, they were experts in the law while they knew nothing. That's what Jesus actually said to the Pharisees. John 5, verse 39. Look at what he said to them. He says, You search the Scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. Remember what Ephesians 1, verse 9 says. It says, God made known to us the mystery of His will according to His purpose, which He set forth in Christ as a plan. That's the same Greek word in our word stewardship here. As a plan, as an administration for the fullness of time to unite all things in Christ, things in heaven, things on earth. The plan was Jesus. The plan was revealed in Jesus. And the plan still is Jesus. And the plan will be Jesus. Jesus is the Alpha and the Omega of everything. Right? All things are from Him, through Him, and to Him. You exist for Christ. That's why you are here. That's why you will be wasting so much time trying to discern your, your bloodline and your genealogy then rather than just focusing on Christ and, and following Him. So how could this happen? Well, I think it starts when we yawn at the cross. We are susceptible for this kind of genealogies and myths. And, oh, that's interesting. I've never heard any Bible teacher say that. Because we find the Bible boring or the gospel boring or we find Jesus boring. Like, yes, I know that. I know the cross. I know that I'm saved by grace. But can we just move on? Can we get something fresh, something new? So when you yawn at the cross, you are missing the big picture of what God is doing. Or to put it in the words of Jesus in Revelations 2, what did he say? He says, You've abandoned your first love. If we abandon Christ, our love for Him, we are susceptible. Are you yawning at the gospel even right now while you're sitting here? Then you are in danger. Your heart is in danger to be led astray by, by, by weird biblical teachings. Now, say biblical there in quotation marks. The warning of 2 Timothy is so helpful. Just turn with me to 2 Timothy 4. I will excuse you if I'm boring. Okay, I can be boring, but not the Bible. All right. You can, you can fall asleep in my sermon, but not when you read your Bible. Okay. 2 Timothy 4. Look at verse 2 to 3. So Paul is saying to Timothy, he's saying, Preach the word. Be ready in season, out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching. But having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. And will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. That sounds a lot like our passage. Myths just are more inter interesting than the plain truth. Because it just gives us speculation, like, wow, that might be true. That sounds so interesting. Instead of the rock-solid reality of what God has already done for us and what He will do for us. So that's the first mark of false teaching. Is it focuses on what we do, on this false gospel. But secondly, the mark of false teaching is it focuses on fantasies and what-ifs. 
It focuses on fantasies and what-ifs. Again, look at verse 4. It says, they devote themselves to myths. Now, these were probably Jewish myths, because Titus 1 verse 14, I think it's referring to the same thing. In Titus 1 14 says, not devoting themselves to Jewish myths and the commands of people. So these were fanciful stories of what, what ifs and legends of history of Israel. Now you can understand why this would be appealing to a Jew. Because it just emphasizes the difference between a Jew and a Gentile. We are the real people of God because of our bloodline. Now there's only one problem. There's simply no way to verify a myth. The best a myth can do is, oh, maybe. Paul says exactly that in verse 4. What does this promote in verse 4? It promotes speculations. It, it distracts you. It just leaves you confused. It makes you think, oh, maybe, I don't know. Instead of focusing on the reality of the stewardship of God, the plan of God that we ought to participate in by faith. Let me give you a few modern examples of myths. In our day, it would be like discussing what would be the implication if aliens exist? And did Jesus then die for the aliens or not? And if aliens exist, how should that change the way? It's like, we don't know, okay? But that just leaves you confused and doubting. You're wasting your time. Or perhaps a more common thing in our circles is a hyper-focus on the Middle East and what's happening in the Middle East and how each Hebrew word in one book of the Bible relates to one country and now finally this prophecy has come true and there's this hyper-focus on end times that leaves you distracted from the Lord Jesus and from His second coming. Right? Or something like the Bible code. Again, finding hidden. If you take these letters, you put them in a string and then you get Vladimir Putin and Right, and then boom, there, the Bible prophesied this, and only you saw it. Nobody else saw this. Sadly, many people feel very stupid, like, oh, I wish I saw that. You know what? You would never see that because it's not there. It's put in. It's invented. And sadly, many people are like, oh, I'm never going to understand the Bible. While we forget simple verses like Deuteronomy 29, 29, right? It's easy to remember. Deuteronomy 29, verse 29. The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children. Children should be able to understand it. That we may do all the words of this law. God is not hiding secrets from us. He wants us to know his, his word is an open word. It's an open secret, right? He wants everybody to know about the Lord Jesus, about how you can be saved and forgiven and have eternal life with him. It's not hidden in some obscure Hebrew or Greek word that nobody ever understood. This happens a lot in sermons. The preaching will take a passage which plainly says one thing, and then suddenly the preacher fills it up with his own, own interpretation, his own analogies or allegories. Again, you might just say, okay, I guess, I hope you're right, Pastor, because I don't see it there. I just have to take your word for it. And ultimately, what is the sad conclusion of all myths, fantasies, and what-ifs? I love what Paul says in verse 7. He doesn't hold anything back in this. This is like a knockout punch in verse 7. Desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they are saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. They are pure ignorant. 
When you make claims like that, right? You're like just solid claims on fantasies. You're just showing off your ignorance. There's a quote I've heard that says, What a mighty silence would descend upon the earth if we only spoke about things we, we knew. Right? Because the sad thing is, sometimes we, are, we say something so confidently, we believe our own lie. We believe our own speculation. We, many people sound like cars reffing the engine, but the, it's not in gear. It's just standing still. It's nothing. It makes a lot of noise, but it's standing still. Beloved, you don't have to know everything to be a Christian, to know God, to love Him, to be, some, to be somebody important or to, to be meaningful to the world. No, you only have to know a few things of eternal value very well and be willing to die for them. And guess what? You already know it. Jesus has come. Your life is for Him. You are meant to be a living sacrifice for Christ. I mean, whatever you do, and do it, live it out. Your life will be meaningful if you do that. These are plain truths. And God wants us to know that. So we've seen what marks false teaching. It focuses on what we do instead of what God has done. It focuses on fantasies and what ifs instead of the reality of God's word. And lastly, ironically, this, this uh, false teaching produces an unholy life. False teaching produces an unholy life. What happens when you put your focus off of God, off of Jesus and the gospel? You focus on the law, what you must do, on the myths and endless genealogies. It's like your diet is poison. And when you eat a lot of poison, you're going to die. You're getting sick. And we see the effects of that most clearly in chapter 6. Just turn with me to chapter 6, verse 3. So Paul picks up false, this false teaching again at the end of the book. And look at what he, what he says is going to happen to you if you eat a lot of false teaching. He says, verse 3, If anyone teaches a different doctrine, the same word we saw in verse one, chapter 1, and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords of godliness, he's puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words which produce envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions, and constant friction among people who are depraved in mind and deprived of the truth, Imagining that godliness is a means of gain. False teachers love to fight for the fight's sake. They're not fighting for the faith. They just like to fight. They like to argue. They like to quarrel. Look at what it says. It says they have an unhealthy craving. That, the word unhealthy there is literally sick. They have a sick, not healthy craving for fighting. In contrast, the Lord's servant in 2 Timothy 2 is not to be quarrelsome, but gentle, kind, able to teach, and correcting his opponents. So we still need to correct, we still need to teach the truth, but we shouldn't love the fight. We shouldn't get a kick out of our fighting and arguing with other people who disagree. It produces dissension, slander, evil suspicions in people. You start to doubt people's character with no evidence. That, that person only reads from the ESV. Did you know that? That person cannot be a Christian. Right? Or you, you just go into this evil suspicions that, that there's no basis for truth. Now, I'm using a silly example, but we do that with, with many things. 
When we start to disagree with someone, we just start looking for, in logic, we call it poisoning the well, right? This guy is, un, you can't listen to him because, I don't know, of something. They don't care about the truth. Ultimately, they will think that godliness is a means of gain. False teachers will love money. They love money. They want to get rich as quickly as possible. But the gospel will produce the opposite of that. Opposite of a, a fighting, quarreling, greedy, discontent. And the final point is, the true son needs to defend true doctrine which leads to true love. That's back in chapter 1. Just turn back to chapter 1 verse 5. And This is what the gospel produces, the good news produces. It says the aim or the goal of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Paul says the aim of our charge, in other words, the charge to silence false teachers would produce what? If we stop going on into endless genealogies and focusing on what we do instead of what God has done, if that happens, if we stop listening to that and listen to the truth, we will have love. That's the fruit of good teaching. Good, true doctrine produces love. That's what God wants for every one of you. To love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength to love your neighbor as yourself. If you do that, you do everything. You keep the whole law by loving now, this is important. Some preachers are good preachers, but they focus so much on what you should avoid that they never teach you how to live. They never teach you the positive side of, of God and Christ and heaven and to rejoice in that. It's like the shepherd that just shows the sheep where not to eat. Again, you will also be mal malnourished because you also need green pastures. Right? You do need good food. So... That's why I want to say, be careful of discernment ministries, right? I think discernment ministries where they always show false teaching and false doctrine and false pastors, and there's a place for them. But if that's all you eat, you're also going to be sick. You need good food. You just need the truth. You need someone just explaining the Bible to you verse by verse. Now, why does silencing false teaching and preaching true doctrine, meaning the gospel, and Christ. Why does that produce love? Because Paul says love comes from three things. Have you seen it? Look at verse 5 again. It says, love that issues from, number one, a pure heart. That's where love comes from. Your heart must be pure. But who of us have a pure heart? Just take last week. If, I can, if you could use last week, and just put all of your thoughts on a projector here for everybody to see. Would you be comfortable with that? We sin daily. But what can wash away my sins? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Only Jesus can give us a pure heart. Do you see? It needs to be cleansed. It needs to be washed. Love comes from a second thing. Not just a pure heart. Verse 5 says... A good conscience. A good conscience is when you know that you are living rightly before God and before people. Again, look at last week. Do you have a good conscience? I pray you do. But again, if you don't, where does a good conscience come from? It begins at the cross. 
if you have a bad conscience and you don't go to the cross, you will either have be self-righteous and then don't love people because you, you can't understand why other people can't get it right and you get it right all the time. Or you will fall into despair and think, well, I'm lost. There's no hope for me because I cannot get it right. But when your conscience is clean by the blood of Jesus, and when you start living that out in your life, it frees you to love. I find that so insightful. I don't know about you. When I have a bad conscience, I cannot love people. I cannot because I'm so focused inward or I'm so irritated with people outward that I just can't love people. But when my, my conscience is clean, I can die. I can just give my life for others. Because I know I'm saved. I know I'm clean. I can just, just be a Christian now. And lastly, where does true love come from? Look at verse 5 at the very end. It says, true love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Literally, an unhypocritical faith. A real faith. Simply put, a sincere faith. Loving, ongoing trust in Jesus. That's what faith is. Trusting in Him. And if you have those three, if you have a pure heart, a good conscience, and a sincere faith, you are free to love. Free to love people. And that's what God wants true doctrine, true teaching of the gospel and of His word to produce in you a life of love. Philip Ryken summarized it well. He says, love is also the best test of our theology. For true love and true doctrine go together. He says, there's no dichotomy there. Liberal theology wants love without doctrine. That's also possible. People want love without the truth. If you love me, you'll just accept me as I am. It is willing to tolerate all kinds of doctrinal error as long as people don't fight. But on the other hand, some Reformation churches are willing to go without love as long as they maintain sound doctrine. If we are not great lovers, there's something wrong with our love or our doctrine or both. You see, we need true doctrine and it needs to be evidenced in our lives by love, true love. So beloved, don't lose your focus from God your Father who is your Savior. Don't lose your focus from Jesus, who is our hope. Don't lose your focus that if you have faith in Jesus, you are a true son, a true daughter. By grace, you've been adopted into the family. By focusing on true doctrine, don't go off into myths and speculations and English genealogies and fancy word studies. Just focus on the Bible, on the truth, on true doctrine that will produce and transform your heart for true love. For those around us. Amen. Let's pray. Oh Lord, we are great sinners. But Lord Jesus, you are a greater saviour. And there is more grace in you than sin in us. And we thank you, Lord, that we can come as we are and be cleansed and have pure hearts and a good conscience and a sincere faith which will issue forth in love 
Lord, that's our desire. We want to live our lives for you. We want the gospel not just to be on our lips, but at, we want the, the gospel, Lord, your glorious gospel, to change the way we think, the way we feel, the way we talk, the way we live. Lord, please protect our church from laziness, from not being watchful in prayer, watchful on our doctrine and what is taught from this pulpit, Lord. May we be jealous to guard your glory, guard your word, and so that many people might see the light and be saved through our lives and the proclamation of your gospel. We pray these things, Lord, for your beautiful namesake. Amen.